hasn't it? Wow, I was just looking at my calendar yesterday, and uh, I've told some of you that, that uh, this has been the busiest summer for, for Darla and me that I ever remember. Uh, it, was, it certainly wasn't on purpose. Uh, lots of things caused it. Uh, actually, about four of the Sundays that uh, we were gone this summer just relates to being a pastor. A general assembly occurred for two Sundays and then uh, in Trinidad for a couple Sundays. And, and as I looked at my calendar, there hasn't been more than been more than two Sundays that I've been here in a row since early May. And I know you guys are feeling it, and I certainly am feeling it. I am I'm so homesick just to be home, to be your pastor. We love you guys. We've missed you, but also I just want to say thank you for those great uh, leaders that stepped up and preached for me. I really appreciate uh, Jeremy and Brian and Pastor Tom. Haven't they done a great job? Can we just thank them? That's just on top of their normal jobs, and so I, I really appreciate that. We're going to try our best to stay home. This summer looks, I mean, this fall looks totally different than this summer. Thanks be to God. And uh, Darla and I have the privilege of, of going to Israel for a couple weeks this fall. But other than that, we're here and we're just really looking forward to being your pastor and being your friend and uh, hugging on your necks and just having a great time this fall. Anybody remember this sermon series called The Story? Anybody remember that? I am so excited. Today we start again uh, for another 14 or 15 weeks. And if you have not, uh, if you don't have one of these books that we're using, uh, if you'll go down to the children's check-in area, uh, Cindy has some more of these, and so, uh, and we've got them for multiple ages as well. So if you're newish, uh, this is a 31-week sermon series where I'm preaching through all of the major movements of the Old Testament and New Testament. There's one storyline in the whole thing. It's this. That God desires to have fellowship with all that he has created to the degree that he provided in the Garden of Eden. Now that was fellowship. And so all throughout the Bible, it's story after story after story of how God is bringing us back into relationship with him. So tomorrow, you'll start reading chapter 17. I, what happens is I preach on the passages. There's many passages that are part of the reading. So I'll introduce it on Sunday morning, and then the next week, you'll be reading through all of those passages. So it kind of gives an introduction. So starting tomorrow, if you've got the book, chapter 17. How many of you remember when the Titanic sunk? Only those of you who are 110 years old or older will remember that, but uh, that was a pretty significant event, wasn't it? Well, on the eve of April the 14th, 1912, this, this world-renowned Titanic, uh, or ship named the Titanic, was taking its maiden voyage. That evening, the radio operators of the Titanic had a stack of greetings 
from those that had paid this large amount of money to ride on this ship the very first time. And they wanted to send greetings to all of their friends in Europe and in the United States, telling them what a huge social event this was and what a great time they were having on this voyage. Well, that evening, that same evening, the radio operators were receiving messages that they were headed towards a dangerous ice field. Well, they set it off to the side because they had so many of these greetings that they had to send on behalf of all of their, their party-going uh, people on the ship. And so they set it off to the side because these other greetings were so much more important. Finally, they got a message from another ship nearby that said that the Titanic needed to be warned because they were going into a very dangerous territory, an ice field. And finally, one of the Titanic's radio operators answered via Morse code. It said this, shut up, shut up, I'm busy. And you know the rest of the story. Shut up, shut up. I'm busy. What is it about us that makes us tend to ignore warnings until it's too late? This week when you read our passage in the story, chapter 17, you'll find that it is apparently uh, an age-old problem. God sent many messengers to warn this special nation that we call Israel. They repeatedly ignored them. If they had Morse code, you know what they would be saying. He even sent people to his special people. He sent Isaiah, and he sent Elijah, and he sent Elisha, and he sent Ezekiel, and he sent Daniel, and he sent Jeremiah. These were all what we call major prophets. They said some very hard truths to God's people, and they just would not listen. Now, if you were here in the spring, you heard me talk about the upper story and the lower story. The upper story is what God sees. He's kind of seen multiple generations and centuries, and he's kind of, he sees and he's pulling things together. We don't see God's perspective. We don't see the upper story. What we do see is the lower story. And the lower story tends to be us looking at very particular events and we don't see what God is seeing and what God is trying to pull together. And as we turn to God's upper story, we, we find it moving quickly toward the end of a very long journey. You see, our story began in a perfect garden, right? 
with God's perfect children, Adam and Eve. They enjoyed perfect community, perfect fellowship with God. They had every resource that they needed. Everything was hunky-dory. That's a theological term from the Missouri Hillbilly theology book. Everything was perfect. Unfortunately, that story went downhill quick. When that perfect fellowship was broken by Adam and Eve, they didn't heed God's warning and they sinned. And from that point until now, in this story, we find God continually warning his people with great grace, grace after grace, after mercy after mercy. And the people still didn't listen. And we're now hearing the prophets telling of the much-anticipated Messiah who would change the way that God relates to his people. That's where we are in the story. Now, that's the upper story. The, the lower, in the lower story, the prophets' actions and words seem random and disconnected. If you've read the, the uh, major and minor prophets recently, it's kind of hard for us to kind of put it all in one story. But God used them. God used those men and those women as they spoke truth, both the good and the bad. There were some, some, some good leaders. There were some bad leaders. God used them to orchestrate this upper story of calling us back into relationship with him. Well, let me give you a bit of a historical background. Around 1,000 B.C., B.C. stands for before Christ, God's people desired a king. God did not want there to be a, a monarchy, but they wanted to be cool like the other cool kids. So God allowed that to happen. And so we see the first three kings of King Saul and King David and King Solomon, and that lasted for about 120 years-ish. But then there began to be some fighting among God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And you'll remember that there was a division between God's people. So 10 tribes went to the north, we call it Israel, Two tribes went south. It was Judah. It was the weaker uh, group of people. But within 150 years of that division, enemies that surrounded them began to come in to Israel and Judah and begin to pull people out, begin to take control over Israel and Judah. The divided kingdom was attacked by Assyria. Assyria took over Israel in the north and pulled most of them out. And in the south, a little bit later, Babylon took quite a few of those that lived in Judah and pulled them out. For all practical purposes, this is the last time we hear about the 12 tribes of Israel. Some came back later, but they didn't come back as separate tribes. There were two primary men, two primary prophets who God used to call his people back to repentance. The first was the prophet Jeremiah. 
Jeremiah wrote two books, Lamentations and one that was, has his name on it, Jeremiah. This must have been the worst pastoral call ever. Can you imagine being Jeremiah, the prophet, called to a people that the people were now in total chaos? God called him to go to Jerusalem, the once proud, beautiful city of Jerusalem with, with the, the temple. That, that should have been the place that anybody would want to go and pastor, but not today. The wealthy people, the artisans, the mar merchants, the military, they had all been pulled out of Israel. They were now prisoners somewhere or dead. The only ones that were left were the poor, those that did not have skills. They were the ones that were left in Israel. And they had turned back to their idols and now lived for themselves. And so this is where Pastor Jeremiah was to represent God. In a broken down city with most of the people taken out and who was left weren't leaders and they certainly weren't godly and now they were worshiping idols. Oh, and one more thing. God tells Jeremiah that no one will listen to him. Can you imagine being that pastor? Jeremiah's purpose was to reveal the sins of the people and explain the reason for their impending disaster. The disaster that would come from the Babylonians. This is what Jeremiah 5.19 says. And when your people say, why has the Lord God done all these things to us? You say, and you say to them, as you have forsaken me, and served foreign gods in your land, so, shall, uh, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. That was his sermon. Because you done God wrong, you will be prisoners in a foreign land. It's a pretty tough sermon to preach. Well, he remained in Jerusalem after most of his people had been, been deported three different times. The Babylonians would come in and take a few thousand at a time, and then they'd wait, wait a couple years, and they'd come back in and take a few more thousand and go by, and come back in, and it was just time after time. And the last time, they stole all of the gold from the temple and then burned it to the ground. And you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar in the next book, and well, uh, after Ezekiel, the next book is Daniel, and, he's, and, he's, and Nebuchadnezzar is using the gold to worship idols, the gold that had been stolen from Solomon's temple. It was like a poke in the eye to Daniel. He was known as the weeping prophet for really good reason, Pastor Tom. It was a really bad pastoral assignment that 
Pastor Jeremiah had as he pastored Jerusalem First Church. You may know that he wrote Lamentations coming from the word lament. So when you read Lamentations, this is the context by which Jeremiah was writing. It was a book of lament. It was a book of weeping, a book of crying, of breaking the heart. And as God's people were forced to march out of Jerusalem, he watched them and he wept bitterly. And he wrote this, how deserted lies the city, Jerusalem, how deserted lies the city once so full of people. How like a widow is she who once was great among the nations. She who was queen among the provinces, has now become a slave. Bitterly she weeps at night. Tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, there is no one to comfort her. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Talking about Jerusalem that whole time. Thankfully, God had given prophet Jeremiah... A, uh, a view, a perspective of the upper story. Keep this in mind when he wrote this verse in Lamentations 3.21. He said, yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassion never fails. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Keep that in mind when you quote that passage of the context by which it was written. So that was Pastor Prophet Jeremiah, one of the key spokesmen of God's mercy during that broken time. There was also another prophet. His name was Ezekiel. He also spoke words of warning to the people of Judah during their deportation. In Ezekiel chapter 6, he says, I, uh, God is speaking, I am about to bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars will be demolished and your, your incense altars will be smashed and I will slay your people in front of your idols. I will lay the dead bodies of the Israelites in front of their idols and I will scatter your bones around your altars and you will know that I am the Lord. Wow. What a, what a positive sermon. Can you imagine? Can you imagine preaching that in front of your people? He's actually known to be... It, it was known as a prophecy of hope and life. You might remember the story of the dry bones coming to life. And I'd like to finish today just focusing on that. So if you'll turn to Ezekiel chapter 37, 1 through 14, I want to spend a little bit more time on this story because it really represents this death and destruction coming back to life story that the Israelites are, are dealing with right now. Uh, I just want to I just want to remind us that every story is should be seen in context. Whenever we take a story out of context, we lose a lot of its true meaning. And so uh, reading the story of the dead dry bones in the valley 
uh, you know, it, it makes a good children's, uh, I don't know why, but it's told often in, in children's Sunday school, and we sing songs about it, right? The dry bones coming back to life. But we forget the context that it's in. What I've been telling you about this historical context of this brokenness and the, 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 the imprisonment of God's people and the 12 tribes being gone and, and Jerusalem being destroyed and the temple being destroyed, all of this is the story of these dry bones. So Ezekiel's story has so much more meaning if you will understand the historical context. There's no doubt that the prophet Ezekiel was in great pain when he told this story. One can imagine the suffering of a pastor prophet, if you will, who finds himself preaching to a people who had been dishonorable towards the Lord. He had already told them in Ezekiel chapter 24 that the walled city of Jerusalem was, listen, if this was a movie, it would be rated R just because of this, because of the disgust of it, that the walled city of Jerusalem was an iron pot with pieces of dead bodies floating in a stew. That's a, that's a pretty tough picture for Ezekiel to be describing to God's people who were now living in another country. Oh, by the way, friends, your home city, Jerusalem, it's so bad, it's like pieces of dead bodies floating in a pot. That's how bad it is. Imagine... Images of, of death just permeates Ezekiel, the whole book. In Ezekiel chapter 39, he describes future Israel, uh, Israelites creating hills of bodies they have slain. There was, there in, in Ezekiel's writing, there's nothing so dead as Israel. And now we have the context of Ezekiel chapter 37, this prophecy of the Valley of Dry Bones. So let's look at this story. So God leads Ezekiel to the Valley of Death. We find this in 1 and 2. Here's what the scripture says. The hand of the Lord was upon me, Ezekiel says. And he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. Now, I want you to right now step into a Jewish, the sandals of a, of a Jew, okay? You understand his or her culture. He says, and set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. Death. He led me back and forth among them. Now, recognize how horrible this would have been for a Jewish man or woman, let alone a Jewish prophet. Jews believed that they would be contaminated 
by coming into contact with the dead. Numbers 19 talks about it. 2 Kings 23 talks about it. Anytime death occurred, whether it was the death of a person, the death of an animal by accident, if you tripped over a dead raccoon on the road, or if you were a butcher and you took the life of an animal, there were certain things that you were required to do to be purified. Jews could not go to worship in the temple if they had come into contact with a dead body until they were cleansed. There were certain steps that they had to take to, to be cleansed in order to worship again. And so there was nothing so disgusting, nothing so revolting than death. And there was this real negative spiritual ramification for Ezekiel to be in the place of death. Let alone piles of bodies. I mean, you can just imagine the, the piles of bones that he was talking about. And the scripture says he was led back and forth in this valley of death. Any of you old enough to remember the news right after Vietnam War, there was this group of people in Cambodia called the Khmer Rouge. Does that name ring a bell to you in Cambodia? Uh, there was a leader, a dictator by the name of Pol Pot. Pol Pot was a rebel leader of Cambodia, and he began to draw uh, men and women to him with with uh, the desire to take over Cambodia and probably other countries. He was a very evil man. They did horrible things to the citizens of Cam Cambodia. In fact, in between 75 and 79, uh, their goal was to kill everyone who was educated. Any government leader, any teacher, if you wore glasses, that meant that you could read. Therefore, you should be killed because you had education. And so between 74, uh, 75 and 79, they had killed 1.7 million of their own people. Cambodia is not a large country at all. About the size of Vermont, probably. They had killed 21% of the entire population. 80% of the teachers... 95% of all medical doctors and nearly everyone else who had any type of education, they were killed. In November of 2000, I was invited to go to, uh, to, go to Phnom Penh, Cambodia to teach a class for about a week. One afternoon, our missionary invited me to go with him to what is called the killing fields of Cambodia. You probably recognize that term because a movie came out many decades ago. And what I found in this large field, they had, they had found 86 mass graves. And they had identified, not by name, but there were 8,900 bodies present in this field and it was about 
20 acres. It wasn't huge. Thousands of people had been murdered in this field. As I scanned over this field, hole after hole after hole had been dug as they identified all of these mass graves and had done their best to pull many of them out. They had been there for 25 years and still they, they weren't done. There were still bodies that as I walked down the path, I had to step over arm bones that were still coming out of the dirt with the person's sleeve and their hand, their wrist was still out. I could tell stories of what I found, but it's, it's really too uh, visceral for me to even speak of what they did to babies and the, the piles of bones. There were, there were piles of skulls of 7,000 skulls at a time in piles still there. They kind of created a, a place that gave honor to those that were killed, but they left the skulls as a reminder to those of us who did not deal with that awful decade as a reminder. As you can imagine, I just, I, I couldn't hardly eat for the rest of the day. It was just so visceral. It was a horrible, horrible place to be. Now, can you imagine this Jewish prophet, Ezekiel, being purposely led through that type of valley that was probably worse, certainly worse than I had gone through? And God actually, on purpose, with total knowledge, led Ezekiel through the valley of death. The valley wasn't just full of the dead, but they were really dead. Now, I know those of you who are doctors, nurses, you're going, wait a minute. It's not just dead and really dead, but I can tell you that is the focus of this passage. I saw a great many bones on the floor, Ezekiel said, of the valley. Bones that were very dry. Later in verse 11, it was as if the bones responded. Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. It was as if God wanted to make a very clear point. Ezekiel was led into a valley, not just full of dead people, but people so dead that there was no more skin on the bones. They'd lain there so long. Their death was so obvious. There were no muscles, no hair, no skin was left, no clothing, just bones. They were sun-dried bones. The bones rattled in verse 7. In verse 2, it said that there were very many bones. In verse 9, it says that people were slain. In verse 12 and 13, the images of graves is used later. God said that there was no breath in them. Why did God push this point over and over? It wasn't just one time. It was over and over and over. What have I said about understanding Hebrew 
the language that the Old Testament used. If it's said over and over and over, you need to go, hmm, wait a minute. God must be trying to emphasize something here. Not so much with Greek in the New Testament, but Hebrew in the Old Testament, if it's repeated over and over, you as the student need to stop and go, why is he repeating this so many times? There's a reason. It was as if God was trying to make sure that it was obvious that Israel was dead. But why? Why would God be so graphic in depicting the death of Israel? Why would God make so clear that Israel was not just dead, but really, really dead this time? Well, God asks a most ridiculous question. Can these bones live? That's a pretty ridiculous question for us humans. And I'm sure Ezekiel is like, what? After he had introduced Ezekiel to the most final picture of death, of, of the death of Israel, he asked this most ridiculous question, son of man, can these bones live? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm guessing Ezekiel had a nervous chuckle at about this time. Didn't quite know what God was asking. Didn't quite know if God was serious. Then he probably realized that God wasn't smiling at this point. And beads of sweat probably begin to appear on the prophet's forehead. And I'm, begin, I, I'm guessing that he began to stutter a bit and get really nervous because he would be trying to get out, get his logical feet back under himself. And he probably swallowed really hard. And answered this most ridiculous question the absolute best way that he could. He said, well, uh, uh, oh, s -s sovereign Lord, you alone know. You alone know. Has God ever asked you a ridiculous question? Will you trust me? Can I trust you? Can I have your addiction? Do you want to be healed? And perhaps our best answer is, oh Lord, only you Why does God ask us questions that just seem crazy? Do you think he's trying to make a point? I wonder what his point is with this question. Son of man, can these bones live? Well, God speaks of his personal involvement in the story to the question. We find it in verses 4 through 6. Notice 
that God begins to answer the ridiculous question by an unmistakable emphasis on his involvement. He says, hear my word. I will make breath enter you. I will attach tendons to you. I will make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. Then you will know that I am the Lord. A phrase that he uses 50 different times in Ezekiel. Write that in the flyleaf of Ezekiel. Then you will know that I am the Lord used 50 times. Has God ever brought you to the place where he showed you that if life change was ever going to happen, if healing was going to occur, if forgiveness was ever possible, if addictions could ever be removed, it was going to be God who did it, not you. Why does he do that? Can you imagine Ezekiel on his hands and knees trying to get the skeletons to work, grabbing a thigh bone and trying to think thigh bones connected to the hip bone and grab the hip bone and the hip bones connected to the rib bone, trying to figure out how do I put these bones back to life? How do I do this, God? God's saying, it's not you in the first place. But how many of us sing the song and try to do the thing ourselves? The really dead became really alive in 7 through 10. I don't understand the way Hollywood CGI works. I don't even know what CGI means. That's how old I am, Marcy. But I know that technology that Hollywood uses is just amazing to bring things to life or to make cars do certain jumps that no one, no one believes they could do. But Hollywood CGI had nothing on the scene that was taking the place in front of Ezekiel. Listen to the graphic words that Ezekiel uses to describe the scene that was taking the place. He says, there was a noise, a, a, a rattling sound. Bones became, came together, bone to bone, and I looked and tendons and flesh appeared and skin began to cover them, but there was no breath in them, he says. And then God inserts himself in the scene in verse 9, prophesy, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Sovereign means master, Lord, king of kings. Come from the four winds, he says. O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. And can you imagine the scene? The sound of the rushing wind and the bones beginning to rattle and moans of new life and chests beginning to heave with new breath and the stirring of bodies and the blush of the cheeks and the raising of the really dead to the really alive. 
verse 10, he says, So I prophesied as commanded to me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and they stood on their feet, a vast army. Not just bones with skin. Not just bodies with breath, but strong bodies that have now become a vast army. God draws back the curtain and explains the meaning to Ezekiel, this story. He says, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. But then God gives them the good news. He says in 12 through 14, oh my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from the dead. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. I will settle you in your own land. Can you hear this with the ear of those that have lived for hundreds of years outside of their home? I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. And there it was. The good news that the people of God had been desperate to hear for now hundreds of years. They could have life again. They could come back into perfect fellowship with God again. They could go back to their promised land again. So what does it mean to step from absolute death to the fresh breath of life? If any group of people understood... It was the Israelites. Let me give you a brief picture into what happens in Israel's future in just a few short skips and jumps. Many of God's people came back to their promised land. A remnant came back. Never again did the 12 tribes come back. But a remnant did come back. And even though they found their way back to their land and rebuilt the temple, they were still seeking some of the fulfillment of the prophecy that they had were to have life and light as a country and that they would have peace. They were searching for that even once they got back. And they were once again under the control of a foreign country, Rome had now 
taken over that area. So they were now dealing with a foreign leader being in charge of them, but at least they were now in their home country. But there was this ache for something more. There was a promise in the future. There was a Messiah. By the time of the Old Testament was now finished, the Spirit of God had been silent for around 300 years. No angels were speaking. No prophets. No miracles. It was silent from heaven. They were hungry spiritually, and for hundreds of years they were still seeking that promised Messiah that they had heard about, prophesied over and over. And in the minds of the people, they could still hear the prophecy of Ezekiel paint this picture of dry bones, dead bones. They, they knew this feeling of helplessness and hopelessness and death, and they felt lifeless as a country, even in their own country, without peace, without their promised Messiah. But one day, after 300 years of silence from heaven, something occurred that moved them from being really dead to really alive. And here were the first words that they heard after 300 years. The scripture says an angel would appear to some shepherds in a field. And this was when the 300 years silence was broken. Do not be afraid, the angel said. I bring you good news of great joy that will be to all people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. Now that is really good news. Would you please stand? Ezekiel and Jeremiah had really tough jobs. They had to speak the truth to people who were broken, they were imprisoned, and who wouldn't even listen to God's warnings at the time. It was an extremely dark period for the Israelites. They had been removed from their promised land, they had lost the fellowship that they had with their creator, it seemed impossible for them to see the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. But now step into the darkness, step into the silence that the Israelites had lived in for all of these centuries. And they begin to feel this new life being breathed into their souls. They had remembered the promise that Isaiah gave to them in chapter 9 when he said, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have shattered the yoke that burdens them. The bar across the shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Listen, 
For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the good news given to the Israelites is ours too. We have reason to celebrate. To those living in the land of the shadow of death, listen, my friends, a light has dawned, and it is dawning for you even today. And if I can just say, if God has been asking you a most ridiculous question, if he's been inviting you to take a step of faith that is just absolutely beyond you, can I just say, Can I encourage you to answer as Ezekiel smartly did? Oh, Lord. Only you know. And by that we're saying, Lord, I don't have the faith. I don't have the ability. I can't put the bones together. But you can. So as we sing this song, I would just like to invite you, if you'd like to come down to the altar and give that most ridiculous question to God. This is a great time. We'd love to gather around you and pray. Please come. Before you, God, staying humble at your feet, I will lift these hands and praise. I will believe. I'll remind myself of all that you've done and the
Heavenly Father, we invite you to ask us ridiculous questions because it helps us to recognize that we are not in control, that we can't do, we can't be, we can't come back to life if it was not you. So Father, today we lift up our hands and we invite you to take out of our hands or put into our hands whatever you know to be best. Because we want you to know that we can't be in control of our lives. We can't succeed. But if we give you control, and if we invite you to do and to make alive again, you will bring about life where we were really dead. So we dedicate ourselves to you. Would you receive this benediction? How do you step from absolute death to the fresh breath of life? It's only because of the good news of the birth of Jesus Christ. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, in the name of the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit, go in peace.